Father, we come before you and we're thankful for today. We thank you that we can praise you because your name is great. Thank you that you are almighty, that you are our defender, our sustainer, our redeemer, that we come to you because you are powerful, that in you is strength, God. In our weakness, we are strong because of you. And so in these moments, God, we ask that you would make much of yourself, God, that you would hide me, that you would increase, Lord, that I would decrease, that all of us, God, that we would be still and know that you are God, that your name would be lifted high. We thank you for these moments that we can come together as a body, that we can worship you, God, that our hearts and our minds, that all of we are, can, can give you praise, can give you honor, God. For that is why we created, we exist to make much of you. Forgive us for when we give our lives for worthless and insignificant things. God, help us to realize that our lives are made for something so much greater, that they are made to make much of you. And so we ask that you would speak, that we would hear, and that you would change us to be like your son. This is your time. Use it as you please. It's in your name we pray, Christ. Amen. You guys have your Bibles. Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8. So uh, the last couple of weeks, I've been a little bit sick, and I think it's going around. I think everybody is uh, is not feeling quite up to snuff. I know that Colin's not feeling well. And um, I did what most of us do when we're sick, and I just laid on the bed and watched TV. And uh, and so one of the days, I think it was this last Saturday, I was watching TV, and there weren't too many great options. Um, it was stuck between um, uh, American Ninja, like American Ninja, which actually was pretty cool. And then... Um, <laughs> And then there was, uh, what was the other? Twilight, right? So my options were, were slim. So obviously I was mostly watching American Ninja while shamelessly then turning back to see werewolves and, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, vampires. So, but while I was walking, watching American Ninja, um, it was, I, I hadn't seen it before and it was a pretty cool show where you have all of these different people from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different body types, and they're all, um, going through these obstacles, right? And so, you have all these different obstacles that are facing them. You know, some are like uh, the salmon bars where they have to have this bar and they have to pop it up, you know. Um, some of them they have to, you know, go across this bar. Um, they have all just a myriad of different kinds of obstacles. And it was really interesting because you see that all these different people face them in different ways. You know, they have different strategies. And even then you can tell, like, you can tell the heart behind some of them. You know, there was this one where it was this invisible ladder and it was the very end. And you can tell, like, they're just struggling with all of their might and you, you really get get to see the desire in that. And as I was looking at the passage this week, it started to make me think that all of us face obstacles, right? I mean, the thing is, in the, in the show, all of them had to face the same obstacles. It wasn't like because some of them were special, they didn't have to face those obstacles. And I think that as Christians, sometimes we come in and we think that, well, like me and God are cool, and so he's going to take away some of these things. You know, like that's really hard for me, so I won't have to face that because me and God are tight. And, and I know that in, early in my Christian life that that was what I thought, you know, like I, I came to Christ and then I started to draw near to him. And, and as soon as I, draw, I, I drew near to him, all of a sudden I encountered all these, these sufferings and these trials. And I was kind of surprised. I'm like, God, we're, we're close now, you know, like I, I gave my life to you. So, you know, what happened to the whole like suffering and trial and hardship thing? Aren't you sovereign? Aren't you in control of these things? You love me, right? So like these are going to be skits. And it was actually the opposite that when I came to him, I, I found that I actually had more more battles, you know, because when you become a Christian, you now struggle against your sin rather than giving into it. 
You now have an enemy called Satan, and he seeks to accuse you and to deceive you. You now, as opposed to swimming in the stream of the river that is the world, going along with its cultures and its ideas, you now are in opposition to it. And so you have now a whole nother degree of trials and tribulations and persecutions and sufferings as a Christian than you do if you're not a Christian. And so the passage we come to today, it talks about this. It says, how is it that we deal with these things? How is it we deal with sufferings and trials and persecutions? How is it we deal when we feel like we are defeated, when we feel like we have nothing to go on? And so Paul approaches it in this, and, and he, he asks this question. He says that we will either be conquered or we will conquer. We will either be conquered or we will conquer. And so how is it that we can have assurance that we will conquer? And so if you will turn with me, we're going to read in verse 31 to verse 39 of Romans chapter 8. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So the big idea, the big idea for today, if there's one thing I want you to take away, it is that we conquer in life. Christians, as Christians, we can conquer in life through God's love for us. We can conquer in life through God's love for us. And the whole passage talks about it. Um, he starts out, there's five questions that he have that are these, um, they're, they're questions to himself. And so he's asking these rhetorical questions. And then he goes through and talks about why is it that we can conquer? Why is it that we can conquer as Christians? So we're going to look at the passage. We're going to go through, through it systematically. Follow me, follow me along. In verse 31, he says, what then shall we say to these things? What are these things that, and what shall we say to them? Um, in verses 28 and 29, what we talked about last week, he says, for God makes all things to work together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And so one of the things that he's asking us to respond to is the fact that no matter what you go through, whether it's good or whether it's bad, God is ultimately using that in the lives of Christians to make them into Jesus, to make them more like Jesus. And so when you encounter anything, you know that it has a purpose, right? We talked about last week that if you encounter something and it doesn't have purpose, then it's the worst thing ever, right? You can go through anything if you know that there is a big enough purpose. And so what Paul's saying is that there's a purpose in your suffering. It doesn't just happen. It's not just random. It's not just that the universe came out of nothing and that you're here because a random, a random chance happened and because, you know, that you were intended. God actually created everything, spoke everything into existence, and that he created you intentionally. And that you are here because of his design and that your sufferings aren't just random. 
that there are things that God has put in your place and in your life because he is intentionally shaping you. He is intentionally designing you as a potter is with clay. So you are in his hands, and he is shaping you into an image, and that is the image of Christ. And he says also, so not only does your suffering have purpose, but he also says that you have been loved from before time began. One of the things that helps me understand this, I think about, for you, who has loved you? Who has loved you the longest? Who has loved you the deepest? Maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your spouse, but how has their love changed you? What, where would your life be without their love? Now, when you think about this, God has loved you before you were even born. God, before eternity passed, knew you and set his love on you. God's foreknowledge is his forelove, for he foreloved you before you were born. And he will love you long after time ceases. That kind of love changes us. Because here's the thing. Sometimes we're really glib. Sometimes we approach these things and we say, oh, everything works for good or God loves you. And we approach these things really um, on a surface level. And it sounds really glib and a cliche and we take it as that. But here's the thing. When you're in the middle of experiencing suffering, when you're not in some place where you can just throw out, throw out an empty cliche, but you're actually in the middle of it, it makes a difference. It makes a difference that there's someone who loves you, who's in control and that the things that you're going through aren't just random, but that he's actually helping you to be formed like Christ. And so what shall we say to these things? What shall we say that our, our suffering is purpose and that God has loved us from eternity past? Hopefully we say amen, right? Hopefully we say praise the Lord. We say hallelujah, right? And that's what Paul says. He says, what shall we say to these things, right? That we should give glory to God, that we should be abundantly thankful and it's, and it's in light of those, it's in light of that context that he goes and he explains the whole rest of what is to come. And he says, first he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? If God's for us, who can be against us? And I don't know about you, but when I read this, I was like, well, a lot. I mean, there, there can be a lot of people against us, Paul. Um, I mean, sometimes we think of, well, it's maybe it's my job. You know, man, I just have these people in my job and they are against me. Or maybe it's family. Maybe it's you have family members, and it's like, man, I just can't get a break. It feels like they're always out to get me. They're always against me. Maybe it's a spouse, and you're fighting, and it just seems like there's no peace. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's, uh, you know, it's school if you're a kid, you know, and you feel like your teachers are just on top of you, and you can't ever get a break from your teachers. You know, what I think of oftentimes is that sometimes even I'm against myself, can I get an amen, right? I mean, sometimes, honestly, we're our biggest enemy. And uh, there's, a, there's a Christian rapper named Andy Minio, and one of the things he says, he says, you know, my biggest enemy is me, and even I can't stop me. And one of the things that this passage talks about, that, that even all with all of these things facing us, all of these things facing us, if God is for us, what does it matter? Right? He's making an argument. He starts from the greater and goes to lesser. And he says, if God is for us, then what do all these other insignificant things matter? What do they matter? And we see this in the Old Testament, right? There, I want to give you two examples, two stories about this. So in the book of Judges, you have Israel now saved from, uh, from Egypt. They've come into the land, and, uh, and they are, they're trying to establish, you know, they, they've established some land, but they're, they don't have kings. And so there's still people in the uh, foreign nations in the land, and so they're waging war. And so they have these temporary judges, these temporary judges that are ruling over the nation of Israel. 
and uh, Israel is being attacked by the Midianites, and uh, and they're pretty much enslaved, and they're scared, they're afraid, and God calls this guy named Gideon. God calls this guy named Gideon. Gideon's afraid. He is making food like in an isolated area so that the Midianites don't find him. And God comes to him and he says, mighty warrior, you are going to be who I use to rescue my people. And Midian, you know, and Gideon kind of like looks around. And he's like, not me, you know, like go pick somebody else. Like he doesn't want it. And um, through a long chain of events, eventually God calls Gideon to, to call Israel to go to war. And he calls and there's 32,000 that respond. Right, 32,000 people from Israel respond, and they're going to wage war. And God says, no, you have too many. You have too many. And the army that they're facing is probably roughly around 135,000, what we get in other estimates in the Bible. And so he says, no, you've got, you've got too many. And so Gideon turns and he says, all those who are afraid or who tremble leave. And 20,000 leave. Right? We have, we have a, a huge number that leave. And God says, still, you have too many. And so he goes, and out of out of the ten thousand that remain, he sees people, and he says, and God tells him, he says, everyone that that lips that drinks with their head up, with their tongue, they laugh it like a dog. They're the ones that stay. Three hundred people, three hundred people stay. Everybody else leaves. And now he says, now, now I will get the glory. And so you see that Gideon goes against the Midianites, and he breaks them up into three different forms, and they attack, and the Midianites run away, and they're dispersed because God was for them. God was with them. Right? He says if God is for us, who can be against us? One of the next stories is is with Elijah. Um in uh it's in uh, uh I think it's second Kings six, but uh Elijah is uh is telling the king of Israel he's telling the king of Israel about uh, about Syria. Syria is coming to attack uh Israel and Elijah is this prophet and he's hearing from the Lord about where the king of Syria is going to be. And so he tells, he tells the king of Israel, he says, hey, listen, don't take your army by this route. Because if you take your army by this route, then the Syrians are going to be there and they're going to attack you. And so Israel is able to escape these battles. right? They're able to go around and they're able to have victory and they're able to escape because of Elijah. And so the king of Syria is saying, hey, who is for Israel in my camp? Who's telling, who's telling Israel where we're going to be? And his people are like, hey, listen, we're for you, but this guy Elijah, man, the Lord's on his side, and he keeps telling him these things. And so the king of Syria is like, all right, we're going to take care of this problem. And so he gets his army, and he goes, and he goes to find Elijah. And he surrounds, he takes his army, and he surrounds Elijah. And Elijah's servant is there, and he says, what are we going to do? <laughs> we're surrounded. And Elijah in that moment prays and says, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. And Elijah's servant then sees, and he sees the Lord's army surrounding. And Elijah turns to me and says, don't you see that those who are for us outnumber those that are for them? And in that moment, the Lord strikes that army with blindness. And Elijah takes him and he says, you've come to the wrong place. And he leads them to the very point in the very camp of Israel. And the king of Israel looks at Elijah and says, hey, should we slaughter them all? And Elijah says, no. In that moment, he shows grace and he shows mercy. And he says, feed them. And so he takes that army and he feeds them and he sends them on their way. And there was no more war. What Paul is saying here is he's saying, listen, if God is for you, no one can be against you. Right? Those that are against you in comparison to God, do you think that and, – and, and just think about this for a while. Because so, sometimes we get in the midst of our trials and our troubles and we get overwhelmed by them. 
I want you to think about what would it be like for you to go up against an army, right? What, what would it be like for you to be Moses and to be told that you're going into the land of Egypt, that your people have been in slavery for 80 years, right? Longer than that, but you've seen your whole life up to 80 years old, you've seen your people be enslaved. You've never had any hope of freedom. You tried your best in your own willpower and didn't work. And for God to tell you, go back. Can you imagine facing that trial? Can you imagine facing that tribulation? It puts things in perspective for us. That if God is for Moses, if he can send him and he can work through him, then God can work through our situations. God can, God can work through us. That if God is for us, who is against us? He goes on and, uh, and he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This word in here, it says, he who did not spare his own son. You know that the other time that that word is used, it's in the Old Testament in the Greek version. It's called the Septuagint. It's used in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham is the father of faith. God calls Abraham to leave everything and to go to a land that he knows not of. And after all these trials, you see Genesis 12 is where God calls Abram, and he promises him. He says, I'm going to make a, a nation of you. I'm going to bless you, and through your descendant, I'm going to bless the entire nation. You're going to have more descendants than there is sand in the sea or stars in the heaven. And it takes a long time for that to happen, right? I mean, it takes years and years, you know, 20 years before Abraham even has a son that's legitimate, right? And then Genesis 22, God God calls Abraham and he says, listen, I want you to go take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. I want you to go up and I want you to sacrifice him. And so in verse in Genesis 22, 12, it talks about that God, because Abraham went and gave his most valued treasure, the thing that his heart loved the most, God knew, God knew that he loved him, that there was nothing else that he would withhold because Abraham gave him everything. That when, when Abraham gave God Isaac, Abraham gave God everything. It was his all. It was his meaning. It was everything. And so God knew in that moment that there was nothing that Abraham would withhold from God because he gave his best. See that, you see that this is what it means for us because of Jesus? That God has given us his best. God has given us everything. How will he withhold from us anything that we need? In Bible study um, this morning, uh, someone asked a question. And I thought it was I thought it was good. Um, someone asked, you know, how much of a how much of a sacrifice did God give because He knew that Jesus would be resurrected, right? I mean, isn't it? Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's a lot. But at the end of the day, God knew that Jesus would be resurrected, right? And so, how much of a, a sacrifice was it? And I think it's a good question because I I think sometimes I've asked that question myself. I've had that question of, well, I mean, God knew, right? And so isn't our sacrifices, aren't our sufferings different? And I think it's important for us to realize a couple of things as we understand the sacrifice of Christ. First, that all of us exist forever. There's no such thing as someone that's going to go into non-existence, but everybody exists in one way or another. Everybody exists either in the presence of God or outside of his presence. So that's, that's an important thing to realize, that nobody just dies and ceases to exist that we all go on forever. We are eternal beings. The second thing I think it's really important to understand is that the unity of love that was between the and between the son, right? That the, the degree of pain and separation is dependent upon the degree of unity in love. And so the more you love somebody, 
the deeper that love, the harsher separation is, the more painful it is. And don't you see that the greatest love that we have is but a dim comparison of the love that is felt between the Father and the Son. The most most rapturous moments, the most times where our heart is inflamed and we're excited is just but a dull comparison to what God feels for his son and what the son feels for his father, the love that they have. But it's not only that, but that they were separated, but also it was the quality of suffering, right? It was the quality of suffering that Christ endured. You see, Christ didn't just die on a cross. It wasn't just a physical suffering. But it, it, the Bible says that he endured our sin, our sickness, our suffering. He took all of that. He bore it on our behalf. I want you to think about this. What would it be like for you to experience your sin that you've for a whole year in a moment? Think about everything that you've sinned, everything you've thought, everything you've done in a whole year. What would it be like for you to experience that in six to eight hours? Can you imagine the anguish that your heart would fill? Can you imagine the pain, the selfishness, the evil? Think about a whole lifetime. Think about you experiencing every evil thought, every evil action you've ever done, you've ever said, your heart's ever wanted. Imagine you experiencing that within a day. I think it would be enough for all of us that it would kill us. Now I want you to imagine God coming in Christ. And he endures not just your whole life's sins in a single moment, but he endures the entire world's sins in a single moment. The most heinous, the most atrocious, the most painful and wretched things that humanity has ever done are now put upon one who has never looked upon sin. The most pure, the most innocent. And the father now is separated, his, turns his back on his son because of that. Don't you see that God has given and has endured everything for us? That he would rather die than be separated from us. That in Christ he gave us everything. Because here's the thing, right? When we go through sufferings, when we go through sufferings, what's the first thing, at least for me, the first thing that I think is that God, maybe I would do a better job. I probably wouldn't put me through this. And so we think that, God, you're not providing for me. God, you're not providing for me in the way that I need. Don't you see my needs? Don't you see what I want? Why don't you give me what I want? Because this is what I need and I know better than you. And what this verse goes at and cuts at the heart at is it cuts at the heart of saying that you can provide better than God can, that you know better than God does. Because it says that God provided for you in your greatest need and the thing that you most desperately wanted. How will he not faithfully give you everything that is less? John Newton had a, a quote, and he said that God gives you everything that is needful. And anything that isn't needful, his hand will withhold. I'll say that again. God gives you everything that is needful, and everything that is not needful, his hand withholds. What that means is that everything that you go through in your life, God has intentionally allowed and brought about so that you would be formed into his image. That everything that is there, God is bringing about for your good if you are in Christ Jesus. And that God withholds something that you so desperately think that you need, but you aren't having. God withholds that because he is sovereign, because he is good. And he has a plan that he's bringing about. And so this helps us. And this helps us so much. This is so practical. Because when you start to believe that you need more money or you need a promotion or you need to get out of suffering or you need this or you need that, you need to go and you need to look at Jesus again. You need to look at how God provided for you in Christ. 
And we need to talk to our heart and say, God has given us everything that we need. God will not withhold from me what is good. He will bring about his purpose. And so rest, my heart. Be still. Be quiet. Remember who God is. Remember what he has done. Soak it in. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will we not with him graciously give us all things? And isn't this something that, that Jesus talks about too? Jesus talks about in Matthew 6. He says to a bunch of people, hear this, people are following Jesus around, right? They are leaving. Most of the crowds that followed Jesus around, they were day laborers, okay? They weren't people that had consistent, long-standing jobs. And so the importance of that is realizing that they depended upon these days' work for their food, right? I mean, if they worked that day, then they were more likely to get a paycheck and actually have food. But they were choosing to follow Jesus. That's why he had compassion on them and fed them. Right? is because they didn't have these long-standing jobs. And it's these group of people that are following around and they're listening to the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus in Matthew 6 starts talking to them. And he says, why are you anxious? Why are you anxious about what you are to eat? Why are you anxious about what you are to wear? God feeds the birds of the field and clothes the flowers of the lilies. And are not you of more value than the sparrows, than many, many flowers? But he says this, he says, seek first the kingdom of God. And all of these things will be added to you. You see, when we put God first, when we seek him first, he provides for us. He is faithful. He will give us what we need. But it's when we're in first and first that we will understand and we will trust our Heavenly Father. He goes on, he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who's at the right hand of God, who's indeed interceding for us. Who brings a charge against us? Who brings a charge against you? The Bible talks about that there's one that's called Satan, that he is, the, the word Satan means accuser, right? That he is the accuser of the brethren, that he's a, a lawyer type, and that he's good at coming and bringing charges against God's people. And that he stands before, and, and we see it with Job, right? That Satan goes out on the earth, and he sweeps to and fro, right? And he sees, and, and God tells him, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan comes, and he begins to accuse, right? He begins to bring charges against. And so, too, in our life, Satan is real, right? He's not a figment of our imagination. And sometimes we do two mistakes. We either think too much of Satan, or we think not enough then we need to understand that we do have an enemy that does really oppose us and that he accuses us. He lies about us. That he stands before God and he tries to accuse us. But, but what this says is that Christ died. And therefore, he has taken the accusations due to us. He's taken the condemnation and the curse that was due to us. And now he's interceding for us. That while Satan accuses, Jesus stands before. Right? Not to... Not to not to initiate forgiveness, because when we become a Christian, we are already forgiven. But Jesus stands right now at the right hand of the Father as a demonstration of our forgiveness. That every time, he's a, he's a witness, he's a, a, an Ebenezer, a, a rock of remembrance. That every time that Satan accuses God, the Father looks at Christ and looks at what he has done and remembers. And Christ says, that's on my account. That's on me. I cover that. And so he defends us. That while Satan, while we have an adversary that accuses us, we have a Lord, we have a Savior that defends us, that stands before God and that makes pleas for us. 
Revelation in Revelation in 12, 10 through 11, it says this. It says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation, the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death, even unto death. And do you see that there is a time he will, be, he will be cast down, and the way that we overcome is through remembering the death that was given for us and by holding fast, holding fast to the testimony that he's given that Christ is enough, that he is worthy of our suffering. We hold fast to that. He goes on and, uh, and he says, who shall separate us, right? The other questions were just a different form of this question. They were all different aspects or different vantage points of this question right here. And he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I want to read real quick 2 Corinthians chapter 6. When, uh, as this week has been going along and as I've been processing this, um, at first, honestly, just to be real, I kind of had a rough time with this passage because it kind of felt to me like a Joel Osteen passage, you know, like something that a prosperity gospel preacher would come up and start talking about and say, don't you know, brothers, we're more than conquerors in Christ. Get your money, you know, or think health, wealth, and prosperity, um, because people use this and take this and twist it. And that there are times, listen, there are times where we don't feel like we're conquerors. There are times where we feel defeated. There's times where we go through rough times. And there are times where we're beaten down. And I want to I read this because the same Paul that wrote that we are more than conquerors also talks about suffering. And so he doesn't approach this with a glib, with a, um, a surface-level understanding, but he knows the deepness of suffering. And so he writes this in, in 2 Corinthians 6, just so we get a, an ability to understand what Paul means by we're conquerors. He says in verse 3, chapter 6, he says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. (coughs) But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Conquering doesn't always look like what the world says it looks like. Conquering doesn't look always like this jib and this overflowing happiness. That we are conquerors through Christ who loved us. You see, in verse 37, he talks about, he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do you know that we are created to be conquerors? That is one of the purposes that we were made. When God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden, right? The garden was a type. 
the garden was formed, it was in order, it was put together. And he told Adam and Eve, he said, what you see here, you are to do to all of creation. He told Adam, he said, go out and subdue it. Go out and put everything, everything is to be subdued, is to be put underneath your reign. And so Adam was to go out and he was to conquer, he was to put everything in order as God had shown him. But then we see that when the fall happened, our ability to conquer has been distorted. It has been broken. Now instead of conquering through love and in peace and in humility, we are now conquered. And you see it with Cain and Abel. Right? The first thing that happens is God tells and he talks to Cain. He says, listen, they bring an offering and Abel's is better. And uh, and God talks to Cain and he says to him, he says, be wary. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. You must rule over it. And what happened? Right? Instead of Cain being able to conquer his sin, being able to conquer and rule over, instead he goes and, and sees that it's easier for him to conquer externally, to use force and power to conquer others. And so he goes and he, he goes and he slays his brother and he conquers and he kills. And so we see the Bible and the, and the effects of sin, that it hinders our ability to conquer as God would have. Instead, we are now conquered because of sin. That's what it means that sometimes we are our own worst enemies. And that's why Christ came on the scene, that he is the true conqueror, that he is the one who stepped in. And was able to defeat the things that we have at, at. Christ came in and showed that he was the true Lord over creation. That while the curse that God gave to Adam because of his sin, that creation and man are at odds, that the ground, it springs up, but it's under hard labor. Christ came and shows that he is the Lord of creation, that he conquered creation. It was subjected to its ruler. Right? We see that Christ comes onto the scene and where we have been destroyed and run astray by our sin. Where our sin runs amok, where our desires are too much for us to carry. We see that Christ took on our unruly desires. That Christ took on our sinfulness, that he bore it in his body on the tree. That we might be set free from it. That he conquered. That he conquered death that no one has beaten. That he stepped up and he defeated death through death. And here's the thing, guys. When Jesus came, his conquering in the moment didn't look like it was conquering. Right? Because he conquered through weakness and through love. Our world, the world says that you need to conquer through brute force and through power and through anger and hatred, right? But the way that Christ conquers is through love. It is through weakness, right? And that is the way that we conquer. We don't conquer in our own strength because it says, it says that we are conquerors, but only through him. You see that all throughout the scriptures, it says that the point of the point of conquering for a Christian is the point where we give up on ourselves, is where we realize. And you see, the world says that you conquer by just believing more in yourself. You just need to you just need to strap up your boots. You need to try harder. You need to realize that you're better, that you can overcome this. What the Bible says is you need to realize that you can't and you need to realize that he can. And you need to come to the point in time at which you realize that only if God is in the picture. Only if I come to a point at which I get rid of myself and I die to myself and I realize that my life is hidden in Christ, that that is the point of strength. And that what hinders us from conquering, what hinders us from conquering is when we trust in ourselves. Is when I think that I'm able. It's when I think that I'm strong. And then you get to the point at which I realize that I'm, my dependence and my strength come from him and that I rely upon him fully. Uh, John Piper, 
had a quote uh, about this passage. He says, the design of God in this chapter is to give you such a deep, firm, unshakable, God-wrought, blood-bought security in his all-conquering love that in these seven kinds of suffering, you will not curse him or forsake him or reproach him, but trust him and hold fast to him and be satisfied with him when all else is taken away. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Or as Job said, after he tore his robe, shaved, shaved his head and fell on the ground, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The design of this passage is not to add eternal security to a life devoted to earthly comfort. The design is to promise eternal security to free you from a life devoted to earthly comfort and give you the freedom and joy and courage to move toward need, not ease. To move toward need, not ease. You see that oftentimes we approach this and we think that it just adds and makes our life more comfortable, more easy. But don't you see that, that when we have a deep assurance and when the love of Christ is real and tangible to us, we can't stay in our nice house. We can't stay behind our picket fence. We can't stay in our comfortable area with everything as it is. Instead, we are broken for a world that doesn't know this kind of love. And it sends us out. It sends us out beyond our fences, beyond our houses, into a world that desperately needs Christ, that desperately needs to hear the gospel. It puts us in uncomfortable positions because we know the one that can change us within the midst of our circumstances. And so it moves us. It moves us out of ease into need into need john talks about in uh in his his short epistle in first john 4 4 he talks about he says little children you are from god and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world and once again in first john 5 4 he says for everyone who has been born of god overcomes the world and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. When I think about conquering, I think about those that have gone before us. Hebrews 11 has this long hall of fame of faith. And it talks about all those that have gone before us. I think about those within even our own last millennia or last, last century. Uh, I read a book uh, by a pastor named Richard Wormbrand. And it talks about it. It's called Tortured for Christ. And in it, Richard Wormbrand um, was in Romania in a time of uh, when communism reigned. And he talks about what it meant for him to suffer. That there was a point in time at which he was in prison for 15 years. And he was enslaved, that he was beaten, that many Christians were killed and were martyred because of that. And he said that it was in the midst of that deep suffering, it was in the midst of that persecution, that, that the beauty of Christ shone. He said, like a diamond is only born under great pressure, so the beauty of Christ emerges under great persecution. It was such a, uh, a beautiful thing. He said at the point in time at which he said he thought he could give no more, that he thought he was utterly defeated and utterly conquered and crushed because not only would they physically torture and beat and malign them, but they would also go through mental torture, right? That they would put them through hours and hours of mental torture where they would be encouraged to denounce Christ, to renounce their faith. He said it was in the moments of this greatest suffering, this greater trial, that he said that we, like a flower broken underfoot, emitted Christ's fragrance. He said that just as in when you crush a flower, it's in those moments that its beauty, its fragrance comes forth. He says, too, so too, when we are broken, 
in the moments where we thought we were most conquered, when life seemed at its darkest, that Christ showed up in his greatest. And it was in those moments that the beauty and the fragrance of Christ emerged and that we had a deeper love for those that persecuted us, for those that hated us. And so in your greatest tribulation, your greatest trials, it's often then that God demonstrates his greatest strength. Without those, we don't often know the greatness and the power of God. We are conquerors through him who loved us. I want to end with um, Keller has a, has a really good quote. He talks about the, the summation of Romans 8. He says, think. Are you afraid? You aren't thinking. Are you worried? You aren't thinking. Are you feeling guilty? You aren't thinking. See the logic of free grace and justification. They aren't dry doctrines. They are life itself. And if you're not living with overwhelming assurance and power, you haven't really fully understood them. You see that the solution for us as Christians isn't to stop thinking. It's to think more. The problem is that when we get in moments in our life where we're overwhelmed, it's because we are not thinking. We're allowing the circumstances of life to dictate how we feel and who we are. And it's in those moments that we need to stop and we need to think more rather than less. Then we need to think about what does it mean that, that Jesus has justified us apart apart from our works. It means that his love, which matters more than anything else, right? When we're worried, it's because we think that something else matters more than God's love. And how foolish, how, how foolish. Um, I'm reminded, I'm reminded of a time where Keller was telling a story about this girl that came in. He was counseling this high school girl and she wasn't able to get a date. She wanted a date desperately and she really just wanted somebody to ask her to the dance. And he was trying to walk her through, don't you see the love of God? Don't you see that he matters more? And he was walking through all of these Christian, all of the assurances of the Christian life. And at the end, she said, yes, I know. Yes, I know that God loves me. Yes, I know that I'm going to be in heaven. Yes, I know that there's going to be all these great rewards and that he died for me. Yes, I know all these things. But what does that matter when somebody won't ask me to dance? Right? What happened in, what's happening in that moment? Right? What's happening in that moment is that she has an intellectual understanding, but her heart is far from the love of God. What she's saying is some pimply-nosed high school boy and his love is more important to her than the God of the universe. And so she's not thinking. She's not thinking. And don't you understand how silly as that is? Don't you see that that happens to all of us? So hopefully it's not a pimply-nosed high school boy, but it's something else. Whether it's work, whether it's family, whether it's an argument, that in that moment we're not thinking. That we are allowing life to tell us that this is more important than God. And how foolish, how foolish that we would think that the created things are more important than the creator. But that's what happens whenever we feel guilty, that we're thinking that our sin is greater than his grace. We're not thinking for how foolish is it to think that we are stronger than him, that our failure to love negates his ability to love. We're not thinking when we think that how work is going and we allow the stresses and the burdens of that to overwhelm us because we think that that matters more, that God's not using it. So as Christians, what we need to do is we need to have, this is why Sabbath is so important. This is why stillness is so important. Because one of the things that the enemy does in all of our lives is he keeps us so busy that we aren't able to think. That we become stupid. And we're swept away by everything that this world says. Are we thinking? Do we believe? Do we understand the love that God has for us that through that love we can conquer? Pray with me.
Father, help us to think clearly. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come, that you would anoint us, that in times where we are overwhelmed, where we feel like we're overcome, when we feel like we have been conquered, I pray that you would, in our moments of weakness, that you would show your great strength. Thank you that you have conquered on our behalf, and that through you we can. God, sometimes it feels far away. Sometimes it feels hard. Sometimes it feels like we're in the depths, like nothing's going to change. Help us to think. Help us to see you. Help us to lay hold of your great love for us. Let me no more my comfort draw from my frail hold of thee. In this alone rejoice with awe thy mighty grasp of me. Thank you that you have such a mighty grasp upon us that you will not let us go, that your love is unshakable, it's unconquerable, that it will never leave or separate us, that we are secure in your hand, that our sin isn't stronger than your grace, that you love us from eternity past and you will love us to eternity future. Help us to rest and have assurance in the midst of this with our struggle with sin, with our struggle with tribulation, when everything around us seems hard, Lord, help us to remember that you are there with us and that if you are for us, who should be against us? It's in your name that we pray, Christ. Amen. The earth trembled and the Jews